John chapter 2. Early in the ministry of the most important man who ever lived, Yeshua had just done his first miracle, turning water into wine at a wedding celebration. His first disciples have started following him. We'll pick up at verse 12. After the wedding, he went to Capernaum for a few days with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples. Capernaum was in Galilee on the north shore of the Canaret, uh, the lake of the Galilee. It was the hometown of Matthew, Simon, and Andrew, possibly James and John. And Capernaum became the center, the headquarters for Yeshua and his disciples. Every year, Yeshua's family went up to Jerusalem to observe Passover. John described Yeshua's first Passover after beginning his ministry as the Messiah, which makes this Passover different from all his other Passovers. The action moves from Galilee in the north to Jerusalem, the center. Verse 13, it was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration. So Yeshua went to Jerusalem. Rabbi Jerry, why did Yeshua go to Jerusalem for Passover? Well, quite simply, it was one of the three required uh, feasts that Jewish people needed to go to Jerusalem for. We find that in Exodus 23, verses 14 through 17. And so Yeshua perfectly kept God's law. Part of God's law was going to Jerusalem for Passover. So here we find him on Passover. Verse 14, in the temple area, he saw merchants selling cattle, sheep, and doves for sacrifices. He also saw dealers at tables exchanging foreign money. Yeshua made a whip from some ropes and chased them all out of the temple. He drove out the sheep and cattle scattered the money changers' coins over the floor, and turned over their tables. Then going over to the people who sold doves, he told them, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. Rabbi Glenn, why did Yeshua do these things? Weren't these necessary activities to aid in the worship of God? And what's the significance of stop turning my father's house into a shuk, a marketplace? Well, the first thing I just want to point out is that people have a really wrong conception of Yeshua as meek and mild and never would speak a a harsh word to anybody. He was always just oh so peaceful. (laughs) Not so. Um, Back in Deuteronomy, God had... Given, made a provision for the Israeli people that when the time would come, anticipating the temple being in Jerusalem, when the time would come uh, for the festivals, the holidays, to bring their sacrifices, that if it was too distant a journey, uh, you know, you take your best lamb because you want to have an unblemished lamb for Passover. You bring your best lamb And if you live hundreds of miles away and it takes you weeks to make that 
required pilgrimage, by the time you get to Jerusalem, that animal might not exactly be flawless anymore. And God knew this. He made a provision. You can sell your animal in your own locale, bind the money in hand, bring it to the place, and there purchase it. So there was a provision for this, but it was the way it was gone about. To use the courts of the temple as a marketplace is to profane it. They were treating something that was holy in an unholy way. So yes, God commanded the sacrifices. Uh, God made the provision for people to purchase a lamb, but, um, but it was inappropriate the way they went about it. Additionally, it wasn't just that they were profaning the house of God. They were usurping the people. They were being extortionist, as it were, in their, uh, the way they charged people for a lamb. Let me explain. The lamb at Passover has to be flawless. And if you want to bring your best lamb to the temple and show it to the priests, you can roll the dice and take your best shot. But you see, they had a little uh, monopoly going on here. The priests working with the Sadducees, uh, they were the ones who determined whether an animal was indeed flawless. Now, you could go to Jerusalem and at an extremely inflated price buy one of their pre-approved uh, animals, uh, and everybody gets a kickback from it. Or you roll the dice and you bring your animal, but they'll probably find some kind of defect. And it had become, and, and by the way, they, there was the whole thing. You have the money changers tables there. Uh, if you came to Jerusalem, which is for Passover, and it's supposed to be a joyful time, and you come there and you've brought your best animal, sorry, no good, doesn't cut it, and you've got to go sell it and bring the money. Here's the money. Oh, I can't take that. Why? Because that's Roman currency. We only take temple currency. Go see my friend Yitzhak over there, and he'll uh, exchange the money for you. Of course, Yitzhak gets his little cut also. And by the time you're done, what was supposed to be a joyful holiday has become a burdensome thing. When Yeshua turned over those tables, not only was he cleaning house, but he was showing who he is, that he is the rightful Lord of that house, right? This is his father's house. They are not to profane it this way. But if you were the average Israeli who had been living for years and years with this abuse, um, you would have been so happy to see that happen. It's like payback, finally, uh, for all this corruption. So there's a number of reasons he did this, chief among which, though, is this is his father's house. It is not to be treated like a shook. Ripping people off in the name of God, ripping people off, you know, the, the spiritual leaders, taking advantage of the people they're supposed to be loving and caring for. Really a terrible, terrible thing. Uh, Yeshua is offended, cleanses the temple, gets rid of this merchandising. But that just happened 2,000 years ago. Uh, in the church today, we never merchandise Christianity in any way, do we? Make money off of the faith. Rabbi Jerry, what do you think? I mean, you know, this is... 
I mean, there's, there's so many examples. Uh, you know, in Catholicism, you know, little prayer cards that are sold, supposedly holy relics, you know, different classes of them. Of course, over time, indulgences, the idea of purchasing people from hell. All these things generate money. I think, you know, more contemporary in our circles, you know, a lot of people charge money for teachings that were made free, you know, um, you know, I, I'm not again, this is something I think very uh, strongly about, you know, I, I'm proud that Shema, everything we produce, videos, we give away CDs, we do for free, um, because we trust in the support of our congregation. Um, you know, I'm not against somebody charging a buck or something if they want to maybe recoup a cost, but for a lot of ministries and a lot of churches, you know, they use that as a way to really generate funds for it. You know, five, ten dollars for a fifty-cent CD. Um, you know, what what God has freely provided to us, we should freely provide to others. Is the way I feel about it. So I think that's just a couple examples that come to my mind. What about you, Rabbi Lauren? Um, I feel the same way. There's a lot of merchandising, fun, you know, fundraising, almost extortion, you know, gimmicks. You know, it's just, um, this didn't end with Yeshua cleansing the temple 2,000 years ago. And we got to be very careful about the way we handle money and what we do to um, gain support. Rabbi Glenn, any thoughts? Oh, and then there's the whole, you need to sow that $1,000 seed into this ministry. There's, There's that whole prosperity garbage as well. So yeah, it's, it's happening in many different ways. Verse 17, then his disciples remembered this prophecy from the scriptures, zeal, passion for God's house will consume me. This is a quote from Psalm 69, which was written by King David. Just as David was zealous about God and the temple, the tabernacle, yet was opposed and oppressed by many and was helped and vindicated by God, so would be David's heir, Yeshua, the Messiah. There is a strong connection between David and the son of David. King David had zeal, passion for God and the things of God in God's house. And so did Yeshua, the greater David. Yeshua was consumed with passion for the house of God, the temple. How about us? Are we consumed with passion for the house of God? What is the house of God today? What is the temple? Well, I would say it's not just a building. It's the people. So do you have passion, enthusiasm, zeal for the people in whom God is living? We are the house of God. We are the temple of the living God. I know some of you have passion for your brothers and sisters in our community. I can see it. You show it. But there's a lot of people who have passion is not the word that I would use to describe their attitude (laughs) towards uh, God's people, specifically the Shema community. Rabbi Jerry, Rabbi Glenn, any thoughts? Well, I mean, you you asked the question, how can we tell? I mean, 
I was talking about this in our Bible study on Thursday, quoting Matthew, you know, where we, you know, where we store our treasures, where our focus are, is our treasures, right? There our heart is also, right? Where you spend your time, your money on, your energy on, that shows where your heart is. You know, do you spend most of your time or even a chunk of your time, you know, thinking about interacting with your brothers and sisters in Messiah's community? Um, or is most of your time, energy, and money spent on other things, you know? Uh, we're, we're, you know, Shema, I think, is, is blessed. We're a pretty social group, you know? We usually have to get the broom out to get, a, you know, to get people to leave after a Saturday, which is uh, a great problem to have. You know, people like to linger here and, and chat. You know, we had our little schmoozing schmear. We had lots of people eating bagels and talking. You know, is it just a Saturday morning thing, or do you have friendships and connections and relationships with people here outside of Saturday morning? Obviously, you can't hang out with every single 100-plus people, but do you have connections? If you don't, you know, that's something you should pray about and consider. That's what God wants, is for you to have enthusiasm and connections to God's community, to be aware of what's going on in your brothers' and sisters' lives, you know, where it's appropriate and possible. Well said. Your time, your talents, your treasure. When you're passionate about something, you think about it, you study it, um, you are invested in it, you're excited about it. So, I mean, is that your attitude towards Shema? Um, praying for your brothers and sisters, thinking about them, praying for them, financially supporting the shul, um, getting to know people, trying to encourage them. You know, investing your time, your talents, your treasure, serving in some way. Passion for your house will consume me. Think about that this week. Pray about that this week. Lord, do I really have passion for your house? The temple was very important to the Jewish people. It was the center of Sinai Covenant Judaism. The descendants of Aaron, the priests, were appointed by God to be in charge of God's house, the temple. Yet that did not deter young Rabbi Yeshua, who was not a priest, from taking charge and cleansing the temple from these activities that should not have been happening there. The Jewish leaders were very unhappy that Yeshua did this. So they wanted Yeshua to do a miracle to prove that God had given him the right to exert this kind of spiritual authority. And the fact that they wanted him to do a miracle indicates that they knew Yeshua was already doing miracles and that other people believed him to be a spiritual authority. Verse 18, but the Jewish leaders demanded, what are you doing? If God gave you authority to do this, show us a miraculous sign to prove it. All right, Yeshua replied, destroy this temple and in three days, I will raise it up. What? They exclaimed. It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you can rebuild it in three days? 
But when Yeshua said this temple, he meant his own body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered he had said this, and they believed both the scriptures and what Yeshua had said. Rabbi Jerry, why did Yeshua refuse to do a miracle for the leaders, proving that he had the authority to cleanse the temple? Well, there's a couple of reasons. First, in a sense, he had already given them a sign through the cleansing of the temple. Um, so he, he actually already demonstrated his kingship in that way relating to the scriptures. Uh, but more than that, so, you know, these uh, individuals did have the authority to ask for a sign to demonstrate what was going on here. This really is from God. So they weren't necessarily out of line for merely asking for a sign, but it's the mindset behind it, which is indicated in the text. And of course, Messiah Yeshua knew. They demanded this sign from Yeshua based on their authority, but in their statement, of asking him for a sign, they're acknowledging the possibility that this could really be a prophet or Messiah or the Messiah, right? Because if they did, if they thought he was just a crazy person, they wouldn't be asking for him to demonstrate with a sign. So in, they've either heard something about Messiah Yeshua or they're thinking this could actually be a prophet of God. So they're asking for this sign. And what they're really doing is they're demanding then God, if this is truly a prophet God. They're demanding that God does what they want. So they had a limited amount of authority here, but they're really usurping their authority by demanding that the Son of God demonstrate a sign for them. And Messiah Yeshua understands that this isn't coming from a place of, well, we want to praise God or follow God's prophet or follow God's Messiah. They're threatened by his authority. We've seen this already. And they are trying to kind of assert control in this situation. Messiah Yeshua, this young rabbi, has gone into the temple, cleansed it, and basically taken authority of God's house. And now they want that authority back. So there's a, a challenge going on here. And Messiah Yeshua is not going to play their game. Yeshua made the statement that his death and resurrection... Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Death, resurrection would be the sign, the miracle that would reveal that God indeed had given Yeshua the authority to cleanse the temple. Rabbi Glenn, Yeshua is aware already at the very beginning of his ministry about his death and resurrection. And tells the, you know, uh, the leaders that that will be the, God's vindication of him, the sign, his resurrection. Uh, what's the importance of Yeshua's death and resurrection? Um, yeah, let me actually just add a, a note about what we just talked about. Did you notice that the, uh, the priests, the religious leaders, didn't say, why did you do that, as though as though they're bewildered, as though they can't imagine why somebody would come and do that. They knew why. They knew they deserved that. The only question was, what makes you think you have the authority to do it? They knew what they were doing was wrong. 
Um, and he tells them he's gonna, the only, the sign that they get, they didn't understand in the moment. Even his disciples didn't understand in the moment. He said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Well, he's talking about his resurrection from the dead. And that will be the ultimate sign. It will serve as incontrovertible proof that he is the Messiah. God would never raise from the dead on the third day, by the way, in fulfillment of prophecy. God would not have raised him from the dead on the third day unless Yeshua was, in fact, the righteous Messiah. So his third day resurrection would be proof. For them, it's a little late. They they want an answer right then and there. They're not getting their answer when they want it. They're not going to get it in the way they would want it. But it will be incontrovertible proof that he is the Messiah. And there's, should I go on about the scriptures scriptures that talk about this? Um, Those of you taking notes, uh, I just pulled a handful. Where in the scriptures does it say that the Messiah would be raised from the dead, that he would die and be raised from the dead? Genesis 3.15 talks about his death, uh, though it's couched in very uh, pictorial terms. Psalm 16, verses 8 through 10, you will not abandon your Holy One to the grave. Your Holy One will not undergo decay. Psalm 22 speaks of his death and his resurrection. Isaiah 53, verses 8 through 11. Daniel 9, 26 speaks about the Messiah being cut off. And Zechariah 13, 7 speaks of the Messiah's death. So the, the, the death and the resurrection of the Messiah, are wo- that, that tandem idea is woven throughout the scriptures. It's in the Psalms. It's in the Torah. It's in the prophets. If you're looking for it, it's all over the place. They believe both the scriptures and what Yeshua had said about his death and resurrection. Yeshua was the greatest teacher who ever lived. One of his teaching methods was to use well-known physical things and processes like the wind, bread and yeast and food, water, birth, seed, sowing and reaping, darkness and light to help people understand spiritual realities. And very often people did not understand what he was talking about, even his own disciples. Here he used the temple to connect um, the temple to himself. Rabbi Jerry, why did Yeshua refer to himself as the temple? What's the connection between Yeshua and the temple? Right. So biblical Judaism, the Judaism we find in the Torah, it's being practiced at this time. The temple is the center for Jewish life, right? As we just read about going up to Jerusalem for Passover, it's because that is where the temple is. All Jewish people, doesn't matter where they are in the world, they need to make this pilgrimage to Jerusalem to go to the temple during this time. You can't have a temple anywhere else. So it is like the center spoke upon which everything else turns. So Yeshua is saying, when he compares himself to the temple, is saying, I am that center. What happened in the temple? Well, a couple of things, but the most important thing is that atonement was made possible 
for our people through the sacrifice of the animals, right? So again, Yeshua linking the temple to himself is saying that I am going to be that perfect atonement. And so these themes we see demonstrated in the Gospels, and later on as we read more in the New Testament, I always think of Hebrews, the entire book when I read this passage, talking about how Messiah Yeshua is our great high priest, right, who serves to the temple. He is that center of our life. He is that temple. He is that perfect sacrifice. And so here in this moment, again, they don't understand these things yet, but afterwards, through the Holy Spirit, when these dots are connected together, they're going to say, oh, this makes perfect sense. And so in a sense, though, the lesson for us today is, as a Jewish person, when I read this passage, it tells me that the focus of my life as a believer in the Lord isn't on a physical temple in Jerusalem anymore. It's on Messiah Yeshua, who is that new and perfect temple. Um, and this, of course, not to get on a whole sermon, but this, of course, is the problem with rabbinic Judaism today, is that it's based on something other than the temple, which is found in the Torah, or Messiah Yeshua, who is found in the New Covenant Scriptures. It's this amalgamation, human creation, and that's why there's so many issues, why it's so empty and broken today. Well said. The temple was not just the place for atonement. It was the place where God manifested his presence on earth in the most powerful way. And Yeshua says, you know, I am the temple. I am the place where God manifests his presence to human beings. So we need to be totally focused on Yeshua, the center, the temple. The Jewish leaders misunderstood what Yeshua meant when he said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And it wasn't only just the Jewish leaders who didn't understand. John told us that the disciples didn't understand either. It was only after Yeshua's death and resurrection, when their faith and their understanding were much greater, that they were able to understand the ways that the scripture predicted Messiah's death and resurrection and able to understand Yeshua's statements about his death and resurrection. Rabbi Glenn, what does this teach us about our need to know the scriptures? Well, you see, they knew the scriptures, but they didn't quite understand that this was that. But once that happened, they were able to put it all together through the help of the Holy Spirit. But um, there had to be something there against which to interpret it. They had to know the scriptures. And if we know the word, we are much more likely to recognize the fulfillment of prophecy when it's happening. Uh, think about the rebirth of the nation of Israel in 1948. To those who were familiar with the words of the prophets, um, it, it came as no surprise and would have been that news would have been received with great joy to those who knew the scriptures. To those unfamiliar with scripture, it was just interesting news. In other words, the, the weight and the import of this just right over their heads. So here's the thing. Um, as we get closer to the end of the age, 
I think it is all the more important that we know the scriptures, that we be reading our Bibles daily. It's so important. We've got to be well-versed. Yeshua told us in advance some of the things that were going to happen. Do you know what they are? He told us some of the things to beware of. Do you know what they are? We've got to know the scriptures. And by the way, the the more we understand the scriptures as a whole, the more we're going to understand the big picture of God's dealings throughout human history. There is a pattern. God reveals his nature and his character through his acts across many generations. The more you know the word, the more you're knowing him and his heart. And as we get toward the end, it's going to be all the more critical. I can't remember any statistics or polling numbers right now about Christians who read the Bible on a regular basis, daily, weekly, monthly, hardly ever at all. But I'm going to guess that um, most Christians, self-identified Christians, even evangelical Christians like us who are more serious about the faith, I suspect that um, most self-identified Christians do not regularly interact with the Word of God on their own. They really don't know the Scriptures. It's like they come they come to a service to get their fix, go home, and then the whole week goes by. Yeah, I think so. Um, you were talking about Israel in 1948. There are so many Christians today who don't know what the scriptures teach about the rebirth of Israel, even though we're, what, 75 years after the rebirth of Israel? There's all these... Scriptures and and the prophets about God scattering the Jewish people and in the last days bringing us back first in a state of unbelief and all the nations of the world gathering against us and God will divinely intervene when we're on the verge of annihilation from, you know, all these nations. It's so clear in the scriptures. And yet how many Christians take, know the scriptures and then actually believe the scriptures? Uh, Yeshua rebuked the two disciples on the road to Emmaus for not believing everything that was written in, what, the law and the prophets? I think he would rebuke many of today's uh, Christians as well for the very same thing. You know, it's kind of interesting. You ever been uh, uh, on a road trip and there's one of these uh, uh, rest stops? And most of the rest stops have a big map right behind a glass and there's a little dot with an arrow. You are here. Okay? In the same way, if we know the scriptures, you know where you are in the bigger scheme. I like that. This first Passover of Yeshua's ministry sets the tone for his relationship with the leaders of Israel. It's going to be one of battling over authority and rejection of Yeshua by the leaders. Their antagonism towards Yeshua, which is already in place, is going to intensify and intensify and build and grow until they kill him. Several years later, at another Passover. John let us know that the opposition of the leaders who demanded a miracle but did not get one was not the only response 
to Yeshua that Passover among the Jewish people, verse 23. Because of the miraculous signs Yeshua did in Jerusalem at the Passover celebration, many began to trust in him. But Yeshua didn't trust them because he knew all about people. No one needed to tell him about human nature, for he knew what was in each person's heart. So that first Passover of his ministry, Yeshua was doing miracles, plural, in Jerusalem. Many of the Jewish people, and there was a huge, huge crowd at Jerusalem for Passover, like probably two or three million Jewish people witnessed or heard about those miracles and were starting to become convinced that Yeshua was sent by God and they began to believe in him. They began to trust him. That's good. However, Yeshua didn't trust them because he knew about human nature and what was in every person's heart. Rabbi Jerry, what did Yeshua know about human nature and what did he know about what is in our hearts as human beings. Well, we could definitely infer from this that whatever he knows about human hearts isn't probably that good if he's not willing to entrust himself to people. So the idea that people are mostly good doesn't seem to match up with this scripture and what Yeshua really knows about people's hearts. It's almost as if people are perhaps totally depraved, you know, sinful, fallen human beings. And that is the reality, right? Is that these crowds love Yeshua. He's so popular, right? He's sticking it to these, uh, this authority that might be oppressive towards them. It's great. Uh, he's going to have huge crowds following him uh, in the beginning of his ministry. But then as time goes on and the teachings get a little bit harder, more is required of demonstrating faith, what do we see? We see the crowds begin to vanish, and we see people begin to turn on Yeshua, and they will definitely turn on him towards the very end of his ministry. He knew that people are fickle, that how people feel about him today is not how they're going to feel about him tomorrow. And so he knew not to put his trust in other people and to open himself up in ways that would make himself vulnerable to them. And so there's wisdom in that and understanding that how people are, how people were then is how people are today. Um, People will turn on you very quickly for very small, sometimes insignificant reasons. Um, And if you put your trust in people or your your hope or your sense of self and in having big crowds or people loving and respecting you, whether you're a, a rabbi or pastor or whatever your job is or online, when people inevitably turn on you, you'll be crushed um, even more so because you put your trust in them. There's wisdom in keeping you know crowds of people who don't know you at arm's length, keeping people who really aren't close to you away. Yeshua had people he was close with. He did have a circle of disciples and an inner circle within that. He had best friends. There's wisdom in that too. But he didn't try to be best friends with everybody. This is a huge, powerful statement about human nature. Human nature is not good. It is fallen. 
It is rebellious. It is short-sighted. It is greedy. It is fickle. This is the naivete of the progressives, leftists, Marxists, who think that if we just have the right sharing, the right uh, political elites, them in charge, uh, we can have a, a, a Marxist utopian paradise here on earth. They don't understand human nature. And so their Marxist paradises will never happen, and they just become more and more oppressive, forcing people uh, to be what they're not. Anyway, we must understand human nature. Fallen, dark, uh, rebellious against God and truth. Yeshua understood this. We should understand it as well. We need a new nature. He didn't trust human nature, Rabbi Glenn, Yeshua, because he knew human nature. We got to do more than believe. We need a whole new nature. Born again, new natured. Thoughts? We do. Um, The verse from Proverbs came to my mind as you guys were talking. Many a man proclaims his own loyalty, but who can find a faithful man, right? People's loyalty is like cotton candy, looks all pretty, and evaporates before you know it. And it is because our nature is fractured. We are a broken race, and we cannot remedy ourselves. There is nothing that we can do to change ourselves, right? We need divine intervention. Uh, Only if God regenerates us, only by his doing, can we be changed. And we are when that happens. And the way it happens, and there's only one way to get that new nature. It comes from the Father, and you've got to declare and yield your full allegiance to his Son, Messiah Yeshua. If you won't do that, you won't get a new nature. He is not going to do that. Yeshua is his terms. So the the dilemma is we need a new nature. The further dilemma is there's nothing, we are helpless to do that for ourselves. And so we, if we will acknowledge that Yeshua is Lord and Messiah and ask him to forgive us for our unbelief, our sin, and transfer all our loyalties to Messiah, we are saved. We, our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. We have an eternity, a a glorious future ahead. But one of the benefits of this is our nature is changed. And you can see it. And you can also see when it hasn't happened. Right? You can tell if a person, person can talk a good talk. But if they've been changed from within, there's going to be outward evidence of it. And uh, this is, I think, part of why Yeshua frequently used the uh, imagery of crops and of seeds. What is planted, that's what's going to grow. And if you're not seeing that in somebody's life, it may well be that they have never surrendered their loyalty to Messiah. Um, So we need a new nature. God offers a new nature, but it's on his terms. 
We live, we operate, we think, we do, we talk out of our nature. If you have that new godly, born-again nature, that divine nature living in you, you are going to think, you are going to talk, you're going to have values that are consistent with that nature. Your life is going to be lived according to that nature. Your priorities will be guided by that new godly nature. And if you don't have that new godly, born-again nature and the Holy Spirit of God living in you, empowering that new nature, you have a fallen nature, dark, demonic, rebellious, and you are going to live and talk and think according to that old nature. We operate out of one of two natures. You better make sure you have that new nature. And there's evidence in it in your life, the way you think, talk, value, do. Paul talked about this. He said, examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Self-examination. Thank you, Rabbi Glenn. Thank you, Rabbi Jerry. 